um, as we are moving into chapter two of Matthew, we're continuing this series in Matthew where we're going kind of step by step, bit by bit. And so we are just hitting chapter two, which is really like the Christmas narrative. And so this is right, baby Jesus and the manger and the wise men. And as I was thinking about those things, I realized that I have a pretty specific image in my head of what that story is. And I'm guessing you do too. I think it's a very familiar story we all know. And yet I was kind of wondering like, is my image of what that is, is it correct? And so I wanna give you 10 seconds, just think like, what is the narrative in your brain? You know, is it um, baby Jesus? And then like, the, like how, do, how do the wise men come on the picture? Like who's King Herod? How many sheep are there? Uh, all those sorts of questions. Like what's some of the time frames? So just consider, I'll give you 10 seconds just to like kind of build an image of what that manger uh, buildup and story is. The rest of our time together, I'm gonna to continue to ask you questions and I'm gonna to continue to be awkwardly silent. And so here's my request of you. I know from being in the seat, whether it's because I'm a student or at church, when the speaker asks you a question internally, it's like, if I just kind of sit here for a few seconds, like they're just gonna tell me the answer. Don't do that, <laughs> just engage with me. I would really appreciate that. So in my version, as I recall the, the birth of Jesus, here's how it kind of goes in my head. Um, I know that before Jesus was born, there were like the three, the three kings, like the we three kings of Orient are, right? I don't really know what the Orient was, but I know that they go to King Herod and they say, hey, Herod, we hear that there's a baby king and can you tell us where he's at? And King Herod's like, oh yeah, Bethlehem. Uh, yeah, would you come back and let me know when you find him? And he's kind of sneakily getting his soldiers ready to go and like destroy this new king. And so he's kind of playing the wise men. Um, and then the, the wise men, after some time of traveling, they like make their way from King Herod to Bethlehem. And they walk into this kind of like the hills outside of Bethlehem. And there's the star and the sheep and like the manger scene. And they open the door and there's like very specifically for some reason, like one donkey, two sheep, a cow, like two shepherds, Mary, Joseph, or whew, Mary, Jesus, Joseph. Um, and then the, the three kings, they come and they present their presence. So that's kind of my, like this image that I have in my head. And as I was thinking about that, I was realizing, uh, I think what contributed to that, like where did I get that image? I think to be honest, it's like a combination of Hallmark movies, greeting cards, and like school plays when I was in kindergarten and I was a shepherd, like that's, those are some of the influences building that narrative in my head. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna read chapter two, this Christmas story, something that's very familiar, we're gonna read it for ourselves. And you'll notice, um, or hopefully you'll notice, or maybe you're, you had a better understanding of this than I did, um, that it's actually quite different than some of this like Hallmark version that we read. And, and as we point this out, um, what I'm not intending to do is like kibosh Christmas and be a grouch. Um, really what I want us to do is I want us to approach Matthew, with some fresh eyes. And for us to get a sense as we start to understand those details and make corrections in our head, we both become more intrigued about the true story, but then we also like get excited that we can put the pieces together ourselves. So we can begin to say, hey, this like kind of familiar narrative, that's actually not quite right. This thing is here and, and this is some of the time frame, and, and we almost like feel the success of like putting the pieces together. So. We're going to read that together, um, but just some questions for you to consider, like who's Herod? 
Who are the wise men? Who did they go to? Um, how did Herod find out about Jesus? When did the wise men reach Jesus? What's kind of a rough timeline? So those are some things to think of. Now, if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. So go ahead and track along. I'm going to read this. So now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, so there's our first like really kind of interesting clue. This whole thing that we're about to do is after the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so we see like right off the bat, um, the, the wise men, um, Herod found out after the fact. And Herod had to go and ask his friends, what's up with this king of the Jews? And so now we're going to continue. The, the scribes and the Pharisees, not the wise men, they t- told him, verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, out of Egypt, I called my son, end quote. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, sent, killed, sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So some little pieces, just in, in quick summary, I'm, ho- I'm hoping you kind of like notice some of these like and thens and before that's and they went theirs. Uh, so a couple things that like, I just want to point out that number one, Jesus was actually born prior to the journey of the wise men. It was Jesus' birth associated with the rising of the star that click, like cued them in. All of a sudden they knew they had something to look for. So then they begin their journey. Um, the second thing I just want to point out uh, this isn't super clear because this is a, a journal ESV rather than like a study version. It doesn't give you quite a lot of context, but uh, the word for wise men is actually in Greek magi. It's short for our understanding of magic and magician. And really what it, it was both a title and a description. So magi were people of, uh, who were basically um, astrologers. They had this like kind of mystical scientist air about them. And uh, if you can, 
right? I'm just thinking of scientists often were assumed to be magicians of some sort. So that's kind of where that root is. So it was a title in the sense it was a real life position of kind of scientist astrologer, but it was also a title of, of someone who was intellectual, who was kind of pursuing like this greater wisdom within nature and science. And so they practiced astrology, which makes sense, right? They studied the stars and kind of this cosmic meaning. So they would have been looking for kind of signs in the heavens. Um, we know that they were from the East. Uh, so we know that they're foreigners. They were foreign to God's people. They were not Jews. And kind of combining all those things, we can assume that because they studied and worshiped the stars, they were probably men who had some sort of false gods or false idols or worshiped nature of some point. Um, we also don't know how many wise men there are, right? There's nothing here that says like the three foreign wise men. Um, we really have no idea who they are. It's almost intentionally vague. Um, but we do see that they had, were men of intellect and wealth, right? That's pretty clear. They're carrying this great wealth with them. Poor farmers don't study the stars and carry piles of gold with them, right? Men of security and prominence have the time and the leisure to study the stars and, and build astrological equipment and carry gold around with them and have some sort of entourage, right? So we're kind of putting together these little evidential pieces. Fourth thing I think is really cool is that the Magi don't go to Herod. Their reason for going to Jerusalem was to inquire about the prophesied king of the Jews. So they would have gone to the, the men and the women that studied the prophecies. They went to the religious temple. They would have gone and said, tell me about your prophecies about this upcoming foretold king of the Jews. King Herod was kind of a puppet king put in place by the Romans. So they were not going to the political power of the day. They were going to this like religious kind of this wealth of, of prophecy knowledge. Um, Something that's interesting is as they begin to ask this question, where is the king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. Like it says that not only was Herod disturbed, but all of Jerusalem was disturbed. If you can imagine that Herod is this puppet king put in place to, to govern this group of people. And all of a sudden you got these foreigners shown up and you can tell they're kind of like out of place, both in like what they're carrying with them, what they look like. And all of a sudden they start saying, hey, where's, where's your king? Where's the king of the Jews? And all these people in Jerusalem would have been considering like, well, Herod's our king. They're like, no, 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 we don't want to talk to Herod. We, like the, the, the king that was prophesied, the king from the stars, like, where is he? And all of a sudden you're wondering, hey, there's this, like this really kind of angry, grumpy king who's capable of killing all of these babies. Do we really want him to feel threatened, right? And so they begin to feel like a concern. What is Herod going to do as these men are coming in and, and asking about the true king? So that's really interesting. And then just a kind of a timeline piece. I think it's interesting to note that Herod himself, uh, no one goes to Herod and is like, hey, Herod, we hear that you know about like baby Jesus. Herod starts getting messages that like, hey, there's some like commotion going on in the temples. There's these foreigners who are in town. And so he actually gathers the scribes and the Pharisees and starts asking them like, king of the Jews, like, what are you talking about? And they start to say, oh, well here in, Be it says in Micah, in Bethlehem will be born like this king. And so it's interesting that he goes and he kind of starts gathering and investigating this on his side. And then once he has this bit of information and kind of context, then he sends secretly and says, why, like, wise men, foreigners, like, come, like, let me ask you some questions. I also want to worship who you're seeking. So I think it's just really interesting as we begin to paint this more like realistic historical picture. Um, other just like quick timeline thing is the, the men from the East, the wise men, they leave Jerusalem, they go to Bethlehem and we don't really know how long it takes, but we know that Jesus has already been born. 
and they've traveled from wherever they are in the east into Jerusalem, and now they're traveling to Bethlehem. And then based on King Herod's actions, he's, it says that he um, sent soldiers to kill all male children in the region that were two and under. So we get this sense of the time frame of the star rising, the, the wise men traveling to Jerusalem, then going to Bethlehem, and then King Herod being like, how come I haven't heard back from the wise men? Like we know, okay, all this happened within about two years for him to then send those people. So the big conclusion of this whole thing, the most interesting thing is that the wise men never had the pleasure of meeting baby Jesus. They got to meet Jesus in his terrible twos. <laughs> so we're, we're putting together some observations, right? Of what are just like some moving pieces in this chapter of Matthew. And so we're gonna transition now from observation, just pointing out some details, and we're gonna transition to interpretation. How do we understand the purpose of this? What it means, what are we looking for? So a, just a, a word I wanna give you, so it's in your toolbox, is this word of hermeneutics. Um, this seems silly, but I kind of remember it because it's Hermann's Eudics. Um, but hermeneutics is basically the study of interpretation. Often it's, it's related to like biblical text. And it, it's both like the study of like the principles and the method of proper interpretation, but it's also this kind of vague, like the art of interpreting, knowing based on the feel of a text, what is the author trying to get us to look at? What are, like, what are some main themes? So um, all of that kind of fits within this idea of hermeneutics. So I would love to hear back from you. This is where I get to put you on the spot. I just wanna hear like, what are some things you're noticing? What are the moving parts and pieces that you've seen in here that we can now begin to question? Like, what does this mean? So what are some parts and pieces, titles, names, themes, people, uh, concepts. What do you hear? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so we have both this, uh, we have prophecy, right? So you're kind of queuing in on this prophecy that ties this very real life historical account of Joseph and his family going to Egypt. But it's also this like looking backwards of what was the, the plot line of Israel and also God's promise of that. Like I have called my son out of Egypt. So like this perspective of God where there's both like historical actions occurring, but then also Matthew from outside is choosing to point at prophecy to explain some of this stuff, right? What else, what else do you see? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you're considering like these very real like financial considerations. Like how, how are they living? How are they providing? And so like that was part of this real life story. Yeah. Anything else? Just names, pe people, concepts, themes? No one's saying magic star yet. Magic star, that's kind of hard. <laughs> Keith, good job, A plus. 
Um, yeah, what else do you see? My, my goal is not to give you the right answer. Our, we're playing investigator. That's really what this is all about. Like this, this whole front port part is just for us to like get our hands in it and start to play with it. Who did the wise men um, interact with, right? So um, we have this like these uh, kind of priestly structures. We have the temple. We have Herod, like kind of this political power in the situation. Anything else before I move on? Okay, so here's what we're gonna do now, is we're gonna kind of look at what is Matthew driving at, okay? What is really, what does Matthew want us to notice? Um, so, but before I, I kind of move off of this, right, I kind of made the joke of the magic star. And, and earlier, um, Amy was talking about like, Angel, an angel appearing to Joseph and having them move around. There are these like weird supernatural pieces that are really uncomfortable. We live in this like cultural time where we are like, like we grew up in this like naturalist world where we assume that uh, the only things that are real are the things we can taste, touch, see, and quantify. And so while that's not necessarily bad, there are things in this text that are like, they don't fit within that category. And so there's some things that I honestly don't even understand myself, but I just want to let you have the permission to not know what to do with them. Because throughout the rest of Matthew, there's going to continue to be things that don't quite fit our understanding. There's going to be healings. There's going to be Jesus raising people from the dead. There's going to continue to be angels and prophecy. And there's things that don't fit within our world. And so um, I, I honestly believe that as we continue in this, um, you're going to grow in clarity I think we'll also shed some misconceptions. I think there's things we wrestle with because we don't fully understand them. And once you get a better understanding, all of a sudden they're far more likely and believable. So I think regardless, we're gonna grow in our trust for who God is, and we're gonna grow in our trust for his writings and, and a proper way of understanding them. So based on all these moving parts, based on Herod and the wise men and the king of the Jews and the sheep and the magic star and Egypt and the babies, like all these moving parts, my question is what does Matthew like really want us to walk away with in this section, okay? So that's really what we're gonna look at. What does Matthew want us to look away with? So is this, what we just read, is it a detailed description about the men from the East? No, we actually have very little to know about them. So obviously Matthew is not trying to help us understand this like religious cast of intellectuals from the East. That's not what he's wanting to, our attention to go to. Um, is he wanting our attention to go to the way that God uses heavenly miracles and stars to direct our human lives? I don't think so. I, th I think it's there, right? It's worth noticing, but that Matthew's not trying to explain that or encourage that. Um, but it's, and so that's probably not it. Is Matthew encouraging us to check our daily horoscopes? <laughs> don't think so. <laughs> um, yeah, don't sign up for Teen Vogue. That's not gonna work out. Um, so here's, here's a good way, kind of a, the best principle that I would give you within this train of hermeneutics of interpretation for how to properly know what to notice. And that is authorial intent. What did the guy who wrote it want you to see? Based on the shape and the flavor of this, what do they want you to see? And so one of the, the best ways to consider authorial intent is to look at the whole. 
So we're gonna look at the entirety of it because one of the images that's really helpful for me to remember uh, to do that is I think of all these different ideas are threads and, and the writer is weaving them in from beginning through the middle, through the development, the climax and the end. So there's these like threads that go all the way throughout. And sometimes they peak up and we really notice them. Sometimes they go below the surface and we lose track for a bit, but they pop back up and we see it and they go back down. And so as the writer, we'll get a better understanding of what the whole message is as we look at the whole. And so if you, for example, taking this thread image, if you come in and there's this thread woven throughout and you take a pair of scissors and you snip it right here and you snip it right here and you pull this bit out and you look at it, it's not gonna be very impressive or make a lot of sense. But when you can leave that connected and you say, oh, what is here? Okay, I see that following here. And now I can hone in on this and how it develops in both directions. All of a sudden we get a really good picture, a good sense of what this is. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna kind of recap really quickly the last two weeks. And then I'm just gonna like throw some darts in Matthew and ask you to look at what is a big theme that Matthew has just introduced in chapter two. What does he want us to really, really see in chapter two? So uh, two weeks ago, the very beginning of Matthew 1 was the genealogy. And in the genealogy, we saw that Jesus was rooted in history. He's a real life person. We saw that he was connected to God's promises to Abraham. We saw that he was part of King David's family tree. Um, and we also saw that Jesus's family tree was made of people who both suffered and caused really great evil in the world. Uh, last week, kind of the latter half of chapter 1, we were looking at the birth and the naming of Jesus. And we see the final figure in Jesus's family tree. We see who his father was, God, through um, the virgin conception. And we also see Jesus's identity. We see his name, Jesus means God saves. And we see his title, Emmanuel, God with us. So now we've just got into uh, the wise men. We're looking for the king of the Jews. Herod responding by killing some uh, children. Um, and so I'm just gonna give you a list. And if you would physically flip with me, okay? I'm just gonna like really quickly, it's gonna require some thumb dexterity, but jump ahead to chapter four, verse 23, okay? Chapter four, verse 23. And again, we're looking at like, what is the big thing in chapter two that's weaving in and out through the entirety of Matthew, okay? So uh, chapter four is where Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. He's gone through the temptation of the wilderness. This is the very first act of his earthly ministry. And it starts with this. He, Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, of, of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jump forward to same page, chapter five, verse three. This is Jesus's very first teaching that's recorded. Verse three, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jump forward one chapter to chapter six, verses nine and 10. This is Jesus teaching his disciples the Lord's prayer. So six, nine and 10, Jesus says, pray like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Go forward a few more chapters, chapter 10, verses five through seven. Chapter 10, verse five and seven. Page 50, bottom left, verse five. This is Jesus sending out his disciples um, for, for the first couple of years. And he says, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Um, go, this is a big old section of chapters. Go to verse, chapter 21, verses four through five. This is Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem prior to his arrest. Chapter 21, verse four and five. It says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. We're jumping forward. This is our second to last one, chapter 25, verse 31. This is Jesus speaking of himself in his return. Chapter 25, verse 31 says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And the final one, chapter 27, verse 37. This is Jesus. He's been arrested. He is actually being crucified in this chapter. This is chapter 27, verse 37. Over his head, they put the charge against him which read, quote, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, end quote. So what do you think it is? What do you think is this thread that's woven in all throughout, literally like, this thing that um, Matthew has just introduced to us in chapter two, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? This is the very first mention of that title and is what the rest of this is going to be undergirded by. It's going to be built off of that title. And so Jesus is going to begin explaining himself as king of the Jews. Now, how did I notice this? Obviously, I'm just very intelligent. You can tell by my pink shirt. Um, but no, uh, one of the, uh, the second hermeneutical practice, I would encourage you, just a good principle, is read the entirety of whatever section you're reading just read the whole thing in one or two sittings. As you read this, all of a sudden, every third page, it's saying kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, king of the Jews, right? And all of a sudden you're seeing like, oh, there's this, this kingdom element that's being developed here. Um, so here's where I wanna give you a tool. Uh, here's a quick tool for you. Um, can you go to the gospel according to Matthew slide, just like the big title slide for me? So our projector is not very good, but if you've been on our website, you'll see that this graphic that they're gonna put up, uh, there's actually some background detail here. It's really hard to pick up with a projector. So there's kind of like an in-between highlight, if you'd put that on the screen for me. It's not the last one, but it's an in-between. Can you guys see this a little bit? Yeah. So this is actually the graphic that is behind the gospel according to Matthew. So here's the tool that I want to give you is we're going to go through the sections that we just looked at and we're going to mark them. And we're going to mark them with a specific symbol that looks like this. Um, no, so there's kind of this like uh, symbology that's actually baked into this. And I just want to point this out to you guys. But so here's my, my gift to you where I'm actually going to reread this list and I'm going to have you flip through here. And what I would like you to do is take this symbol of crown and I would like for you just to mark it. Maybe it's over Jesus' name. Maybe it's over his, uh, the word kingdom. Um, <clears throat> there are many more 
references and explanations of Jesus as king and God in his kingdom, but I want these to act as milestones. So as you're going through this yourself, you're remembering, right? We're going to be in Matthew for quite a while. And so I want these to be, you come across them and go, oh yeah, that's the big theme. That's a really big thing. So we're actually going to take a few minutes because I want to gift you with those milestones. Um, So we're starting in chapter two, right? Where is king of the Jews? So stick a crown on there somewhere. And then we're going to jump forward to chapter four, verse 23. And I know this is going to take a bit. That's okay. Chapter four, verse 23. And if you've got that, we're going to be in five, three, same page. Then we're going to be chapter six, verse nine and 10. Chapter five, verse three. Yep. And then for you super speedies, six, nine and 10. And then chapters 10, 5, and 7. And if you feel left behind, don't worry. I got one more treat for you. 6, 9, and 10. And then 10, 5, and 7. Chapter 10, 5, and 7. And then chapter 21, 4, and 5. So that's chapter 21, verse 4 and 5. Then chapter 25, verse 31. Chapter 25, verse 31. And then the final one, chapter 27, verse 37. If you missed any of those, don't worry. Here is my trick for you. Take this, do this, put a crown, do this, put a crown, do this, put a crown. Because it's so full of it, the odds are you'll hit it on a page. That's really like what's so cool about this is Matthew is really honing in on this, this idea and this concept of what is the kingdom of God? Who is Jesus as a king? So if you didn't get any of those, you can literally just like flip through and put one and you'll probably be pretty close. So <clears throat> my goal for the rest of our time is... Um, to just like kind of question what, what does a king, right? It's really easy to talk about, oh yeah, Jesus is king. We get that uh, and then move on. But there's something, there's a reason that Matthew's taking so much time to lay that out. And so what I'm not gonna do is put words in Jesus's mouth. I'm very much gonna leave this kind of a blank slate and let you fill it in. Um, my hope is that this week, you actually read the entirety of this. Take an hour to read the whole thing. Um, so I wanna leave it kind of a blank slate, but really what I wanna ask is like, what is, what is just like a basic framework for Jesus as king that we can like kind of like begin to think in a new way? And then what does God's kingdom mean? And begin to think about that in maybe a more tangible and more new way. So that's the goal. So what is a king? Uh, so we use the word king and the word king is this weird like it's familiar, but also very distant, right? When we think of kings, we think of like the king of England. Uh, we think of the guy with the crown and the scepter. Maybe he's got some big armies, uh, sends out big decrees, but we live in America. We live in a democracy. And so it's really hard for us to kind of understand this like supreme being, though our presidency is kind of like erring in that direction, which is weird. Um, but we live in a really low power structure culture. The president is not some superhuman, right? They're just a human that we've 
assented to their authority. And so oftentimes that's a little bit different than kind of an ancient understanding of king. Kings had this like position of prominence. They were these like ultimate beings, these representatives of the whole nation. So um, I think that's my first point is that kings represent the nation. They are the voice of the people. They are literally like the head of the people. And so as we continue to consider kings, I want to point out that kings have land. They have a territory. They have a geographical location that they are. They have authority and rule over. Right? Kings also have a people. There's a nation of people that assent to the king having authority, and they agree to live by the king's laws and the king's values. So there's a people. There's a land associated with the king. There's a people, a very specific people group associated with the king. And we also see that the king's values what the king deems right and wrong and good and evil, those are played out in the lives of individuals through law and through the economy. If a king believes in fair trade and not cheating someone, they will have laws that influence the fairness of trade amongst their people. Um, If a king does not want you to murder your neighbor, they will have a law and a decree. So if the king values justice, that will work its way into the lives of the people based on um, the law, but then also like the way that humans live together. I'm I'm just calling that economy. Um, So the last thing I just want to point out is that the king has a very specific will. The the king has like a, who they are in their core. The rest of this stuff flows out and is shaped by who they are in really tangible ways. So just to put that maybe in some real world, like uh, different language that the king has authority, right? Their voice is law. They get to establish right and wrong. They shape culture. Um, So the goals of the king, the goals and the purposes of the king become the goals and the purposes of the people. For example, does the king want to enlarge their territory? I I wanna go get that land and those resources. So my people, the people of the king, now their lives shift, right? They begin joining the army. They begin producing weapons. Sons and husbands are sent off to fight for the king. So the entire life of the people shifts based on the desires of the king and who the king is. Similarly, if a king wants um, progress, the king might invest in new academies and councils and education. Like we actually are living in that within the United States, right? Like we in our government have said education is important. So we've developed a structure of education and all of us have gone through school. School's not mandatory. School is present in our country because we've said school is important and now it's legislated through government, right? So that's just another idea of like authority shapes the real life implications of the people of a nation. Um, So here's really like this big key thought is that because of their role, their position, their authority, like we as people are shaped by the reference point of the king. Whoever the king is, whatever they value, whatever they want, we are shaped by that. We become different people based on who the king is and the way that they, um, what or what they value, what their will is. So my question for us is like, what is, what kind of a king is Jesus? What does he value? Is he just another political figure? Is he something more? As we're considering like his kingship, Something that is super cool here is that Jesus was king before he was born. 
Jesus was not born, lived for a couple years, and then became king. The prophecies actually said the stars indicated that at the moment of his birth, before his birth, Jesus had carried the title king of the Jews. And now he was present in tangible flesh and blood, carrying that title. But that title had actually belonged to him far before. Now, if we remember that Jesus is both God's son, but also God himself, we make this connection that God is actually, God was the first king. If we consider back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden, God had a land. He had a physical garden that he had created. He had intentions for. God had a people. He had created humans to be under his reign and in his society. Those humans had, um, I'll use the word law and economics, but they had a system of engaging. They had behaviors towards each other. They shared apples. Um, So there's like this economy, this real life way of relating there. And then because of this brokenness of relationship, God as king becomes distant all of a sudden. And so God becomes slightly removed. And so then for the the rest of the the first nine books of the Old Testament, God, it continues to be king. There are now elders and leaders and prophets. So these, there are like humans in place, but God ultimately is always the king. And it's not until first Samuel, the ninth book after, I don't even know how many hundreds of years that the people actually say, they look around at the nations around them and they say, you're hard to grasp. A king like our nations next to us, like that's easy to understand. Their flesh, their blood, we can understand them. We want a king of our own. We don't want you to be king ourselves or we don't want you to be king of us. So the rest of the Old Testament, much of the rest of the Old Testament is really just like God's people suffering under the hands of their king, suffering under the hands of the kings of the nations around them. That when God is not their king, brokenness ensues. Obviously the people of Israel failed while God was their king, but much of the rest of the Old Testament is them just like really suffering as they, are, they get to set their own values. They get to set their, their own rules within their kingdom. And so this is really cool. We, um, in Micah chapter five, so this is what uh, Matthew's quoted, the, the Bethlehem component. Um, we, we kind of tend to blow past that, right? We don't really look at prophecy. We read it and go, oh, interesting. And then we move on. It's actually really quite fascinating when you read where those prophecies came from and what was present. Um, in Micah, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but Micah is a, this point in Israel's history where they were no longer suffering under the reign of a foreign nation. They had gotten their freedom. Israel was in charge of Israel and they were actually in this state of um, safety. They had their own rule. They weren't threatened by the nations around them and they had excess. They were flourishing, they were doing well. And so we might look at that and say, oh, God was so good to them. But it's actually, they were continuing to be kings of their own nation, right? God was not on the throne. And so what we see is that in their safety and in their excess, they actually begin to continue to suffer under their own leadership because pretty quickly their nation transitions into, um, so the prophet Micah is actually calling out these sinful practices. So what they begin to transition into is they begin to worship false gods. They begin to, unfairly take property, right? Those who are powerful in positions of power basically boss around those who have less power. They begin to seize land and property. We begin to see that their court systems become unjust and corrupt. 
begin to see that their religious leadership begins to actually no longer follow God and they begin to abuse the religious sway that they have over the people. You see that prophets actually sell themselves. They take bribes and then begin to give artificial words of what God has said. See that business practices that have to do with cheating and abuse begin to crop up. Violence increases. And the concluding accusation in Micah is so interesting. The people, because they knew that they were wrong before God, begin to offer sacrifices. And what Micah, um, or what God through Micah is accusing them of is the idolatrous belief that God is satisfied with dead animals. He asked them this question, like, do I feed on dead animals? Do I drink their blood? Of course not. Like, I'm the God who loves righteousness and justice and mercy. And I've given you this, this system of sacrifice, not because I eat animals, but because I want you to see the, like the death and the destruction that results from your sin. And this is a symbol of that. So we see that even when they're safe from outside influence, like the people of Israel suffer when they are on the throne, when God is not on the throne. Now, I'm talking a lot about Micah, right? And it feels kind of random then as we look at chapter two, there's this really weird little piece snipped out of Micah about like out of Bethlehem will be born like this good shepherd. Uh, This feels kind of random. Everything I've just talked about, about like this like corrupt economy and rulership. And then also the end of Micah is all about these promises of rescue and redemption. And so it feels really weird that we kind of snip this little part about shepherd out. And again, I'm going to point us to authorial intent. Is Matthew trying to tell us all about the corrupt governments in Israel's past? No. But what he's pointing to is that in the words of God towards these corrupt governments, he was actually saying, I will, like someone that will be the true king will come and it will come out of Bethlehem specifically. And so this is an affirmation that Jesus, this title King of the Jews is like accurately applied to this real life human being born in Bethlehem. So I think really there's just this idea that Jesus is this promised vehicle for God retaking the throne, right? If Israel having authority over Israel isn't the answer and foreign nations having authority over Israel isn't the answer, then it actually is going to require God himself retaking the throne in a really beautiful way. And Jesus is the way that he's doing that. So we've talked about King, we've talked about Micah. The last thing I wanna talk about is kingdom. Like what are some of the tangible ways that the king influences the kingdom? And what might it look like for you and I to anticipate that kingdom and begin to live in that kingdom right now? So again, the king has land. There's this geographical reality God created a physical world. He intends to reign over a physical world, though there are also spiritual realities. We see that there are a set group of people. God rules over those who assent to his reign, people who accept him. See that God has his own values that he asks his people to follow and live out of. And I think what you'll see for the rest of Matthew is that those are actually really beautiful principles. Those are principles you desire to have in your life. And so through all that, we get a sense of the king and we grow like in admiration and anticipation for the king. That leads me to this opposition to kingdom. 
So if we know that Jesus and his goodness leads to a good kingdom, there's also this opposite. And so um, the word that helps me most remember this is this word of empire, right? If you consider the Old Testament, you can think of the Egyptian empire, the empire of the Assyrians or the Babylonians. These were these kingdoms, not part of God's people, where the will of the king completely separate from God was pursuing their own goals and objectives. And we can look in history of like what those nations looked and felt like. But um, what I really want to point out is this idea of like kingdom is both a real life tangible thing, but it's also this theme of what it means to be in God's presence and have him ruling and reigning in your heart. And this word empire is a theme of both real life nations and governments pursuing their own well-being, kind of stomping on everyone around them. But there's also this like theme of empire is you pursuing your own like well-being where God is not in the throne of your life, but you are. And what results in that? And so where I want to kind of like put some flesh on a little bit more on this idea of kingdom and empire is I want to point at Herod in chapter two. I want to point at Jesus. Obviously, Jesus is a toddler in chapter two, so there's kind of some zooming out there. Um, but Herod in chapter two, just as we consider him as a representation of what it means when there's no attempt for God to be on the throne. We're pursuing our own will, we're pursuing our own protection and power. We know that Herod, um, when he was kind of a puppet king put in place by the Romans and he was ruling over the people of Israel. They were really this kind of oppressed people group within the Roman empire. They had very few um, rights and they were pretty looked down on. Um, and we see that when the wise men come in and they start asking for the true king, what is his response? He kind of, in this flurry of activity, he kind of gathers all the resources, tries to figure out what this is, calls the wise men to him and, and, Basic and lies and deceives and says, I also want to worship this God, even though his intention is murder. And at the end of the story, what we see is when um, Herod can't protect his throne through the death of one child, he chooses to protect his throne through the death of hundreds and thousands of children. That is empire. Empire is those kingdoms and those governments that part of our hearts that's willing to oppress those who are under us for power. Empire is like the willingness to use lies and deception to maintain control. Empire is um, not just the presence, but the justification of economic disparity. And I think the greatest, um, most horrifying bit here is this idea that King Herod was willing to murder to protect his own power. Right, this ultimate sense of what I have and want is far more important than your life or their life. I'm willing to like murder and destroy for my sake, for my will, for my empire, right? Now, obviously I've spoken already that this is both like um, institutional, like real life governments. Herod was a dude. He was part of a real life government that chose to murder rather than lose power. So there's this real life human being component, but there's also this like theme of internally like, what, what is the system of the world that we're stuck in? So my last question before we move to kingdom is like, have, can you imagine or not imagine, but can you recall any empires, any like any empires that you have seen in the world? Are there any real life? And I understand empire might be kind of misleading, but like governments, powers, people, 
foreign or domestic, that chose to oppress those who were under their authority, take away their voice. Governments or institutions or people that chose to lie and deceive in order to control. Are you familiar with any governments or nations where economic disparity is not just present, but it's kind of covered up? Can you think of any nations that are willing to kill in order to protect their own power or their own interests? So I'll, I'll be honest. Um, when I first wrote this, I had a pretty, um, I had a list that was very much my own opinions. Um, and I have kind of chosen to be quiet because I felt like what I was doing was I was taking my own experiences and reading them in and wanting you to like jump on my soapbox with me. Um, and like, I wanna be very fair to you and I wanna be fair to this position of teaching that you've honored me with. Um, and I just wanna like point some of these things out that the way that the empire, like this theme, this real life way of living is those who are willing to oppress, lie, deceive, ones who are okay with economic disparity and inequality and those who are willing to kill in order to protect their own interests. And I just wanna let your imagination go from there. And, and realize like, as we're about to transition that um, your loyalty might be kind of split. And as your loyalty is split, like, it's actually a freeing thing as we consider what the opposite of empire is, kingdom of God. And it's far better to enjoy being in the kingdom of God than to be stuck in the broken system of empire. But what I do wanna point out is that these are real life things. Kingdom of God, the empire, they're not just these ethereal, like babies on clouds things. These are real life ways of living as humanity with each other. So if Herod, an empire, is willing to oppress and lie and deceive and justify inequality and kill to protect themselves, like what is the story of Jesus as king? Does he offer a different use of authority and power? I think we see all throughout the, the testimony of Matthew that Jesus, wherever he goes, he leaves behind him this wake of freedom and healing. He uses his power to free individuals from their sin, from the things they're addicted to, from their uh, like positions of um, poverty, and he heals those who are around him physically and emotionally. See that Jesus always speaks truth with love. Jesus never covers up, nor hides, nor deceives, nor to protect himself. He always speaks truth with great love. See that Jesus, the economy that he talks about is an economy of compassion. It's an economy of compassion, not of accumulation. In fact, often Jesus goes to those who are most poor and most abused and oppressed, and he reminds them of the worth that he sees in them. And ultimately we see that rather than murdering and killing others to retain his own power, Jesus ultimately dies himself in order to give you power, in order to make you part of his kingdom, to help you be free from the empire, both in you and outside of you. He says, you are citizens because of what I've done. He's giving up his own power for your sake. 
And as we kind of work our way now towards conclusion, we are almost done. Uh, I just want to point out that Jesus in, in like us, our understanding, adding the title of king to Jesus, I think there's this tendency where we think of kings as distant and aloof and kind of this like hard to touch authority. I want to remind us that, um, again, we don't snip a thing out of context. The entire context of Matthew, but also the Bible, is that God refers to himself, yes, as king, this like powerful authority, but also as father. It's like intimate one who loves you and is gentle with you. He calls himself the good shepherd, the one who guides and corrects and protects. In John chapter 15, he calls himself the vine and he says, abide and rest in me. He's not a taskmaster king. He's, he's both king and father and shepherd and the vine that lets us rest. And so why am I talking so much about kings and kingdoms, right? Obviously it's in Matthew, but I also just wanna, like there's this thing that I see in us and I'm stealing this language actually. Uh, there's a podcast called This Cultural Moment and they use this language of the king, like we want the kingdom without the king. I think that rings very, very true in our, our kind of modern culture. Our, in America and kind of internationally, we want like equality. We want racial justice. We want everyone to have a place at the table. We want like in, uh, economic disparity to be removed. We want um, everyone to be healed through kind of like this free healthcare system. We want these things. We desire world peace. So we want peace and justice and mercy and righteousness. We want all these things to be built into our way of living together. And I know that there's like, that's complex, but ultimately like our nation is saying, we want the kingdom of God, all the things that result when God is king, but we don't want to recognize God on the throne. We will not assent to his rule or his reign, but we want all the things that should flow from him. And so I like, I want us to begin to kind of, place all these really good things that we want and realize like they're not going to come from empire. Empire will be empire. And hopefully like by God's grace, it improves and it's not always terrible. Um, but the kingdom of God is really the place where those things will be present. It's his rule and his reign that will make those things present. So here's the hard part about all of this is that um, Jesus in, in Matthew, he's both the king that has come physically. Jesus came, he was physically here, he has died for us, but he's also the king that has not yet come. He promised that he will return and there will be a, a turning point in history when that happens. And all this hard stuff that we wrestle through, like it will actually be made right and his kingdom will become a tangible reality without our struggle of trying to follow it. But that leaves us in this in-between place where we can taste the kingdom. We know that God has brought the kingdom here. He's offered to give us um, new spiritual life and healing. He says you can live out of different values and live in a different kingdom, but you're still stuck with empire all around you. And the reality is that if you try to live out of the kingdom in your life and you're surrounded by empire, you're gonna get hurt. Like the empire is strong and it's kind of a bully but also like you cannot have the dream life of the empire. You can't have the dream life of the empire and also live in God's kingdom. The dream life of the empire is very much the result of like competition and oppression. 
And so if you're willing to embrace the kingdom of God, I guarantee you your life will be more beautiful and more full and more good, but it'll also cost. And that's hard. But I, I also guarantee you that when the true king does return and set all things right, it will be, like, it will be worth it. Absolutely worth it. And so I think that's, that's a decision we have to make. Do we, in this short period of time that we have called life, do we contribute towards empire and assume that Jesus will come at some point? Or do we say empire is wrong from day one and I'm going to live in the kingdom of God and I'm going to get hurt and I'm going to get pushed around and I will, I'm giving up the dream of empire and all the, the excess that comes with that, but I'm willing to live in the kingdom starting now and I'm going to anticipate it and look forward to it for when Jesus does come. So here's my, my final request of you. Um, I intentionally left this very blank. I think um, I've pretty intentionally not told you what Jesus says. I've pretty intentionally not told you my interpretation of some of that. Uh, I've not told you about who Jesus is as king nor what his kingdom feels like because I want you to hear it from him. And I want you to read this and enjoy it and have it shake you up a little bit but also like give you like bring your heart to life of what it, like what the kingdom actually looks like and feels like for you in your life to live out of. I believe that as you read the words from Jesus's mouth, the values the values will bring you alive and the reality of living those values out will terrify you. But I think ultimately like God will speak to you and I trust him to speak to you far better than I ever can. I also recognize my own biases. So um, would you just pray with me? And then we'll take communion. Father, God, you are king. Um, I think there's a sense that we all want to worship you and have you reign in our lives, and yet that's really scary because it um, is in opposition to so much of the empire and its messages around us and the desires of the empire in our hearts. And yet I think ultimately, like, we want our home to be your kingdom. We want you to be our king. And we're excited for that to not be as much of a struggle. Lord, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for giving us these stories of yourself, of painting a picture for what, what the good news is that you're here, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Amen. <laughs>